Hey, Wellpod listeners, just a quick note to let you know there's some language in this episode, so fair warning. And Mount, and I am Brandon Edgens. And Brandon, where are you? Uh, where are you calling me from right now? The calls are coming from inside the house. <laughs> so true. This is so weird. I'm quarantined <sighs> over, and um, we're both quarantined in different houses on, on, on Anson's property. So I am sitting in a, a sort of little closet space over in the guest house and you're over in the main house and, and we can't I, get near and can't, it, can't get near each other and when i we decided to to do this episode i remembered i left my all my audio equipment in that room <laughs> so i'm recording with my little handheld right now i hope it sounds okay but, I thought it was i thought it was an incredible uh, uh, bit of foresight on your part that you would stock this closet with all of this audio gear <laughs> And you were it, really thinking ahead. And then it just gets weirder because our friends, KK and Kevin, and their and their their son Wiley, just escaped New York um, yesterday or the day before. And then I had been traveling uh, because my mother had to have surgery, so I have to be separated from all of you and my wife. So we're literally we're four different groups. There's my wife. There's me, who can't see each other. You and your group and. KK and Kevin, this is like a, a, the restoration comedy of manners that this is turned into. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm going to write a sitcom script and sell it. It's so funny. All the socializing we can do is out in your yard, but we're all standing very <laughs> far away from each other. <laughs> Sorry, getting... <laughs> yelling pleasantries, the pleasant, like casual conversation, but at a very high volume to, to get it across, you know, the wind noise and stuff. Uh. Yeah, it was it was so cute actually. I didn't even know how I was going to get home from the airport yesterday, but Dara showed up in the Explorer wearing a surgical mask and gloves, and we gave each other air hugs. And I got <laughs> in the last row of the truck in my surgical mask. And it, and I know this all sounds crazy. And two weeks ago, it would have been crazy. But what's amazing to me is how quickly we as a species can consolidate information and change. Um, so anyways, that this is a, a segment that we do uh, for The Well called The Drop, and it's a, it's a way that we check in with our listeners between seasons by letting them know what we've been listening to and reading and, and enjoying in the arts and the sciences uh, as, a, as a way of staying in touch. Uh, but this episode is a little bit more timely uh, because this is really happening in real time. And thank goodness we're living in a time of this kind of technology where we can, uh, we can just make something out of scratch pretty quickly and uh, put it out there for, for consumption. And um, we hope that this is going to help to distract you for a little bit and also give you a little bit of perspective because uh, Brandon and I were talking earlier today a little bit about the history of pandemics uh, and it's a pretty interesting one, isn't it? 
Well, first of all, you, you know, as we were standing at a safe distance from each other near your garage, uh, and you said to me, I thought it'd be fun to do a piece about plagues. <laughs> fun. Yeah, that'll be fun. That doesn't sound like fun. Well, I mean, you know, we are in a time, you know, it is, it hits, it strikes me multiple times a day. I find myself with my friends laughing, trying to make the best of this time. And at the same time realizing I've already had two colleagues die. Yeah, I know. You know, and... I, I think that if if you and I do one thing pretty well, it is to come at things from a, uh, the point of view of interest. Yes. Right. And uh, I mm-hmm. thought that that was something that we could uh, kind of give things today. Um, well, I'm well, I'm, I'm I'm ready to tackle it. With all a, right. With a perspective, D- did you do any research? On, a little on bit. Plagues? Yeah, I was I, I was really surprised. Uh, I didn't realize that the plague of Justinian, which was from mm. the 6th century, which was a bacterium, not a, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was, not, it was a bacterium, it was not a virus. It killed half the world's population. I did not Jesus. realize that that was exactly the same bacterium that stuck around and became the Black Plague 800 years later. But, and, and it's still around. People forget. But when it came, death is gone. When it when it came back as the Black Plague, it killed two hundred million people mm-hmm. in just a few years. So coronavirus ain't got nothing on the Black Plague. No, and 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 part of the history is always still being rewritten about uh, the bubonic plague, the Black Death. Um, one is that the Norway rat has been unfairly demonized in this whole in, the, in that whole history. Turns out it wasn't the rat that was spreading it. Really? Re- more recent uh, investigation reveals it was a gerbil. <laughs> really? Yeah, a cute little gerbil. Oh. Those, yeah, those little bastards. We owe the Norway rat an apology. Uh, uh, one just weird little tidbit that popped into my memory about uh, the bubonic plague um, was that there was a tiny little community somewhere, I want to say in north, mid-England, that survived the plague. I don't think anyone in the town died. And it turned out it was because everyone there, you know, back then, if you, everyone in the same town was probably pretty closely related to each other, they had natural immunity. But, the, but at the time, they didn't know anything about that. Um, at, instead, you know, they would get sick, but they didn't die. And one person whose name is lost to history, you know, was suffering with the plague and fever and delirium and all that. And he went downstairs in the middle of the night and all he wanted, he just wanted water. He was just in a completely, completely delirious, picked up a jug of what he thought was water, drank it. It wasn't water. It was uh, bacon fat. It was rendered fat. <laughs> <laughs> So he, Imagine his surprise. He, <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure if he noticed. He was in a pretty bad state. Right. But at some point, he became aware. Everybody became aware. He was going to survive anyway, folks. It wasn't the bacon grease that cured him. Um, but, you know, back then, they didn't know that. So, I, I mean, this is I'm making this up, but I 
I'm, I would like to think that that got out there and everyone was trying out bacon grease as a pr- <laughs> as a drinking pro, you know, five cups of bacon grease and call me in the morning. See if you feel any better. That would be a <laughs> wonderful cure. <laughs> yeah, and if you and if you don't already have it, you're not going to feel very good for at least a little while. <laughs> what were the other epidemics? Um, well, the 1918 Spanish flu. Oh, of course. Um, uh, the estimates vary wildly. You know, upwards uh, towards 50 million uh, people. A lot of strange things about that virus. Um, uh, one, it seemed to kind of crop up everywhere at the same time. This is before we had, you know, jets and stuff. So it's a mystery as to how it kind of spread because it didn't move around the way we think of viruses moving. It may have been dormant in the population and then through some clock mechanism that we don't understand sprang to life. And it was so um, devastating. It was really this the Spanish flu that ended World War One, you know, it was not the bullets. It wasn't the war. It wasn't people weren't being lost to bullets and explosions. They're they're being lost to the to the disease. So strangely enough, yeah, uh, <laughs> it ended a war. And on a personal note, uh, you know, I, I said a minute ago that uh, the bubonic plague is still around, just not very many. Uh, in fact, in 2013, it caused 126 deaths. The old bubonic plague is still out there. Um, and the Spanish flu, which killed so many people back in 1918, 1919, uh, I had it when I was two or three. What? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was two or three years old, and again, who knows where I found it or where I came in contact with it. But, uh, yeah, I almost died. I mean, I don't remember any of this because I was two or three and I had a fever the whole time, but I was in the hospital for, I think, six weeks. And, um, you know, thankfully, I don't really remember any of that time. But I was, uh, a couple people had given me up for dead around that point. Um, And I don't have any memory of it, like I said, except for kind of a vague sense memory of being constantly interrupted because I was being shots, you know, every hour, um, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And I just remember just not being left alone. And again, it's not a distinct memory. It's a sense memory. It's uh, no specific uh, images or sounds or anything to go with it, just a feeling. And uh, yeah, I was was almost a goner, man. Spanish flu almost got me. Yeah. Leave it to you to track down a rare virus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a collector, you know. Um, yeah, I'm, you a know connoisse- they say that, I'm, I'm a connoisseur of viruses. You know, they say that, yeah, yeah what you said earlier about the, you know, World War One and uh, the Spanish flu, they say that half the people that died in the Civil War actually died of cholera or the flu, not from gunshot wounds. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, especially the, the sanitation back then, yeah. Yeah, and all that crowding together, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All, all cities have been where we've learned the most about these diseases. And I, I don't remember the name of the guy oh, yeah. who, who pinpointed uh, water as the vector in London during the its last big cholera uh, outbreak. Um, by the way, another fun fact, cricket. Um, cricket was made up kind of invented uh, 
to get uh, city dwellers out of the city and into the country, away from the bad air. Uh, it was a government-created in, uh, initiative to get people out of where, what they knew were the hot zones, but they just didn't understand why they were hot zones. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. So, yeah. they, the, so, the, so the British government made up a sport that required mm-hmm. people to go to large outdoor areas. That required space. They required you know, space, requ- yeah. But anyway, uh, uh, one thing that struck me about how, how quickly this has changed culture and changed um, the way we all feel, you know? It's a blanket um, so, sort of force that's altered everyone to some degree. And it feels cosmic, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it feel like the gears of the cosmos have shifted somehow and now everything is different? Yeah. And, and it's because, you know, and the people who lived the very first plagues, you know, recognize this because the word, uh, our word for influenza, comes from the medieval Latin influentia, which is an astrological term meaning to be under the influence of the stars. And since back then everything was because of the stars, you can see where I'm heading. You know, disease was from the stars. It influences health. And uh, then in the early 1500s in Italy, it became influenza. It's still meaning to influence, but influenced by what? The stars, originally. Well, an, a, a, another interesting thing, I, speaking of etymology, uh, what I learned uh, researching this is the origin of the word quarantine. Um, the the quarantine was invented during, I want to say, the Black Plague by, uh, of all people, the Venetians, when they didn't know what was causing it, where it was coming from, and Venice was a major port city, and someone came up with the idea of keeping all ships, incoming ships, in port uh, for 30 days, and that was in Italian, a 30-day span of time. All right. It was called... Uh, Trent, Trentino. Trent, Trentino. Trentino, yeah. And then uh, it was later expanded to 40 days to be extra cautious, and that is called a quarantino. Quarantino. Oh. Quarantine. Cool. Well, we were learning so much from all of this sitting around and having nothing else to do. <laughs> no. They're really, I mean, that's sort of the thing that's, that is that is coming out in the zeitgeist right now is just the sheer amounts of boredom. We were, we were talking earlier about how um, I'm in, I'm absolutely believe that we're gonna see a baby boom come out of yeah. this, <laughs> and possibly a divorce boom. Um, I am. We're both lucky. Lucky that we have not just good marriages, good friendships with our wives, and they're incredibly supportive people. Dara, right now, because of the situation, and she's the only one who's been here the entire time, is the one who unfortunately has been tasked with cooking and cleaning for all of us. So we're waiting to uh, to pamper her once we're out of this quarantine situation. Uh, I was going to say that till the end, but yes, uh, Dara, uh, you'll be listening to this. Thank you. Thank you from all of us and our little group over here and your guest house. You've done so much for us. Dara has been like 
a one-person FEMA operation. She's just like cooking and cleaning for everybody and maintaining like the strictest order and boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's another thing that I wanted to, to, to say is that, you know, I recently had the experience of flying to a different part of the country, Florida for my mother's surgery and, and getting to see the difference in behavior and reaction, uh, on a, on a citywide level. And the differences are striking. Um, you know, obviously there are a lot of people that are going to listen to this right now and hear what the, the extremes that we're going to and think, oh, you guys are being paranoid, but you came from New York. We all have friends in New York who are watching this go down in real time. And this is serious. Yeah. It changes. Sorry. It changes when you know people that have been hit by it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in Florida. My mother had to have non-elective surgery. I was surprised that I was being allowed into the lobby. But when they told me that they just needed to give me a name tag to go up to pre-op, I had to start asking them questions. And I'm not going to say which hospital it was, but I was was very surprised um, that my mother wanted me there. So I went up and I... Uh, when her surgeon came around, this is not a dumb guy. He's a very renowned, very brilliant surgeon. Uh, I asked him about this policy and, um, he said to me, I don't think it's going to get that bad. And I said, well, I just came from the New York area. And he said, you just came from the New York area. And I said, yeah, I just came from the New York area and it's, it's getting really real, real fast. And uh, you've got sick patients. You've got people that are compromised immune systems in here. So later on, uh, mom had her surgery and went well. And I uh, went for the briefing with the surgeon. And he told me about how everything went, went fine. And then he said, now, new subject. I have to ask you, did, were you not given a questionnaire when you came into the hospital about whether or not you've traveled? And I said, no. And he said, nobody asked you if you've been traveling? He said, no. And they said, well... They were supposed to do that. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, a questionnaire? I mean, I don't think they know what they're in for. And I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an epidemiologist, but we're in touch with people who are, who are going through this right now. And I don't wanna scare anybody, but you need to take this seriously. This is extraordinarily communicable. And it is killing not just old people, there are people of all ages mm-hmm. that are dying, not at the rates of older people, but this thing can kill. And you, you, if you are not taking this seriously, you're, you're playing a form of Russian roulette. And it's incumbent upon all of us to join the team and stay isolated for the short period of time to let this thing pass. You know, if we could do that perfectly, it would be over in two weeks. Obviously, we're not going to be able to do that perfectly, but we we got to start taking this seriously. I have um, two acquaintances, 25 and 26 years old in New York. They're both on ventilators. And I have three other acquaintances that are in their 60s, all in a coma. So, and that's just me. You know, every we're getting to that stage where everyone knows someone who knows someone, and then it'll be everyone knows someone. 
Um, and that's going to be everywhere, uh, pretty, pretty rapidly. So yeah, yeah I'd, I'm echo your sentiment and just say, take it seriously. This is, uh, and also we're not trying to scare anyone. I think fear and panic is actually, uh, the enemy yeah. of, of, of keeping yourself and your loved ones safe. Um, you can be rational, you can be calm and you can take, you know, rational steps and make yourself feel safer and wait it out. And we're all in the same boat, everyone. All in the same boat because the virus doesn't care. My my little bit of knowledge is only going to be dangerous in a situation like this. So I'm not going to weigh in on any kind of like specifics, you know, or prognosticate about what's going to happen. There's lots of good information out there. Um, and there's also a lot of bad information out there. And just... Uh, you know, the CDC is still a gold standard. Uh, go straight to them. You don't have to let any other leader filter um, and spin the information. The CDC has great intel. That's a great. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you read a book on viruses, right? Yes, we are getting to the recommendation portion of the drop, uh, and it is a book by Carl Zimmer called. Planet of Viruses. <laughs> I love Carl Zimmer. He's a great writer. Yeah, and uh, there's so much. There's so much in this book, uh, and I, I I don't know about everyone else, but for me, whenever there's something kind of scary, just knowing anything about it, um, the more you know, the more you feel like you have a grip on it. The less mysterious it seems, and trying to understand exactly what a virus is is it's actually pretty fascinating. Um, according to Nobel laureate Peter Medawar, a virus is, quote, a piece of nucleic acid surrounded by bad news. <laughs> <laughs> well, the jury, I mean, there's, a, there's still disagreement, apparently, on whether or not a virus is a, is, can be considered a life form. Um. A little bit, yes. The, the strange thing, we found these like super viruses, these really large things that seem to have some kind of metabolic function built into them. And those are kind of a new discovery because back when we would look for samples of viruses, you'd filter the, the, right. the, the water sample or whatever. Right. And, we and we assumed that viruses were, were super tiny, which they are. And so all the ones that got through that filter are the ones that we studied. But whoops. There's no, there were some big ones that didn't go through the filter <laughs> that, that are now new to us because they didn't fit through. Isn't that silly? That's so you stupid. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what I love is the first one that they found was in a rooftop cistern, the first, yes. the first super uh -huh. virus. And mm -hmm. so then they decided, well, I wonder if there's more of these in other rooftop cisterns. <laughs> so they started looking yeah. at all and the not, water and other rooftop cisterns, and they found more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they're, <laughs> not, and they're out, in all they're of everywhere. them. <laughs> yeah. And they're all of them. And, and that's the point about viruses, is that they are absolutely, absolutely everywhere. There's a, um, uh, the, if you remember the Cave of Crystals in Mexico, they are these giant, uh, surreally yeah. gigantic crystals. Okay, those things were created by volcanic activity 26 million years ago, and they have been pretty much sealed off from all biological activity for millions and millions and millions of years. One of the most sealed up places on earth nothing lives down there no fish nothing there's nothing to infect which is weird because when a virologist went down there 
just, you know, for jollies to see if, you know, who knows? <laughs> because they find viruses everywhere else. Why not? Let's go to the most pristine, walled-off part of the Earth and see what's down there. So he takes his sample from the water from the Cave of Crystals in Mexico, takes him back, puts him under a microscope. Guess what? <laughs> Every drop of water contained at least two million viruses. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. <laughs> viruses are absolutely everywhere. Fortunately, I don't remember the percentage, but uh, it's like less than 5%, less than 1% even, I don't remember, that are uh, pathogenic to us because everything can get sick, you know? Uh, of, the viruses have evolved to uh, be able to infect every living thing, every single living thing on the planet. So uh, frogs have viruses, plants get viruses, bacteria get viruses. And bacteria can get sick from a virus and die. <laughs> Isn't that weird? <laughs> uh, Single-cell eukaryote. I mean, no, no, there is no limit. Everything can be infected by a virus that has evolved to infect that organism. And, the, is, and, and trying to ascertain what the function of a virus is, it turns out they're actually kind of important um, to... To evolution. Uh, viruses are probably what drives most of evolution. I mean, most of evolution comes from uh, spelling errors, you know, and while the DNA is replicating itself, there's a spelling error. Some of those spelling errors are caused by cosmic rays. I mean, you can have a, right. uh, a, a small uh, uh, subatomic particle rip through your body. And by the way, there's billions of them ripping through your body as we speak. And, uh, but they usually don't hit anything. But sometimes they, like a billiard ball, bing, knock off a piece of uh, DNA at the moment that it's being transcribed, and then it gets the wrong thing stuck in there, and that's, you know, the spelling error. And that usually doesn't really cause much of anything. Viruses, some of them, insinuate their uh, DNA into yours. So these are not like single little bits of... Uh, nucleic acid that are that are knocked off. These are whole chains of information that get uh, spliced in to your uh, DNA. Which is, by the way, which is why we're now using uh, engineering viruses for therapy because viruses are really good at this. Uh, they're really good at insinuating their DNA into ours, and it, it's thought that as much as five percent of all human DNA, everything that we're walking around with is ancient, ancient viral DNA. Yeah. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of years. I mean, it's just the beginning of, of life. Viruses have had a very important job shuttling, now randomly, yes, but randomly uh, moving bits of DNA between species and between cells. Uh, they're kind of uh, like uh, sort of couriers of what is called, and I love this term, Genetic leakage. <laughs> so okay. just little bits of DNA that break off from something and then get surrounded in this little envelope, and well, some of them do, and end up infecting a host cell. And it, like I said, it takes uh, information and characteristics from one organism to another. Uh, and sometimes it confirms benefit. And some of the times it makes you sick. I'm not going to read... A little passage here from Carl Zimmer's A Planet of Viruses. 
As the infected embryo grew and divided, all of its cells also inherited the virus DNA. When the chick emerged from its shell, it was part chicken and part virus. And with the avian leukesis virus, now part of its genome, it passed down the virus's DNA to its own offspring. The virus remained a silent passenger from generation to generation for thousands of years. But under certain conditions, the virus could reactivate, create tumors, and spread to other birds. Scientists recognized that this new virus was in a class of its own. They called it an endogenous retrovirus. Endogenous meaning generated within. Endogenous retroviruses can linger in their host for millions of years this way. (laughs) But when they scanned the human genome, they found many segments of DNA that bore a striking resemblance to retroviruses. Many of these segments resembled retrovirus-like segments in apes and monkeys, suggesting that they had infected our ancestors 30 million years ago or more. But some of the retrovirus-like segments in the human genome had no counterparts in any other species. It was possible that the segments unique to humans started out as retroviruses that infected our ancestors a million years ago. And that's the end of the reading. But uh, these endogenous retroviruses are viruses that we kind of create. I mean, they at this point, they're part of us. They've been part of us for millions and millions of years. But in the course of our um, normal cell activity of splicing and, you know, replicating, they will reactivate. And suddenly you have spontaneously, it seems, created a virus from within. (laughs) Wow. And that's what I mean by genetic leakage. All of these viruses, uh, they've been around since the very beginning. They could have been, I don't think they were first, but as soon as there was a cell, there was a virus that could infect that cell and also move information from one cell to another. Uh, And that's really all it's doing. But uh, like I said, sometimes it confers benefit. Most of the time it does nothing. And some of the times it makes you very, very sick. Well, that's amazing. Like our, our own genetic sequencing would not be what it was without viruses. Absolutely not. Yeah. They, they are the drivers. They are a very substantial driver of evolution. Wow. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, it is. It's, it's one of those things that if you want to get kind of new agey and spiritual about it is kind of a way of saying, you know, we really are all connected. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those ways that we're all connected, you know, like me and the, my cat and you and everything has had this, uh, you know, some point in our history has had, it has swapped some, uh, some genetic material at some point, or we wouldn't be where we are. It'd be stagnant. And that's all evolution is, is evolution would be stagnant if there weren't some kind of a force to kind of shake things up. And that can either be spelling errors, random spelling errors, cosmic rays, or viruses, Hmm. you know, and, and, and also hidden, not hidden, but also down in our DNA, there's the evidence that we've been dealing with these little troublemakers for a very, very long time because that's where the immune system comes from. We wouldn't have ways of fighting these things at all if we hadn't evolved with them right since the beginning. Mm. And uh, and in so many ways, your body is a, uh, um, well, it's a wonderland. <laughs> but it's also a <laughs> battleground. <laughs> you know, there's all this stuff fighting for resources and your body is the resource. 
and uh, you've got a lot of stuff duking it out in you right now, bacteria and viruses. And for the most part, uh, you've contracting, you're contracting viruses all the time, but your immune system works, and you never know that you haven't. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it usually works. But then, you know, the reason we call it the novel coronavirus is because it's novel, meaning we don't have experience with it yet, which is why it's, um, you know, it transmits so quickly and easily. Because, um, yeah. Do you have any recommendations? I only have one this week. Um, I, I found myself thinking a lot about, um, you know, I have a few friends that have made, and, and film critic friends that have made sort of lists, um, top. 10 list, top 20 list, movies that you should see that maybe if you haven't seen them, you, this is the time to watch watch them because you got time on your hands. And um, I haven't really seen anybody recommending um, hidden gems, you know, and you and I both talk a lot about films that are hidden gems that, that are mostly still not discovered but worth seeing. And one came to strongly to mind when I started thinking about this, um, and it's... It's a little movie called uh, The One I Love. Hmm. And I believe I saw it on Netflix. I'm not sure if it's still there, but you, you could definitely find it. It's a, it's a low-budget independent film with Elizabeth Moss and Mark Duplass. And it's, it's uh, a movie... Gosh, how do I not spoil it? Um... As I said before, you know, there may, we could be seeing a divorce boom. Well, this is a movie about a, a couple that is in a tough time and they decide to go do this experimental couples treatment that involves them staying in a house together. It's a science fiction film, but huh. it, it, it's, it's extraordinarily heartwarming uh, because what saves them in the end, uh, after being forced to see each other and themselves in ways I can't explain to you, or I'd be, I'd be destroying the movie experience for you. What keeps them together in the end is the raw decision. Do we want to be together or not? And, and I think that this is a time when anxieties are a little high and when we are forced into the same space with the people that we love and our anxieties are high, there's going to be some, some conflict, maybe some unnecessary conflict, because that's what happens when we're anxious. And I think it would be a really, really good movie for people to watch with their loved ones, because uh, there are parallels in there uh, to what we're experiencing right now, just in terms of, of relationship and sharing a space together and being in each other's world. Uh, it's called The One I Love, and I highly recommend it. Oh, man. Well, I'll definitely check that out. I have time, you know. Oh, well, this is the thing that's kind of on everyone's mind right now. This is the big the big thing. And as a podcast about creativity, we've kind of buried the lead here. What's that? What are you going to oh, do? Yeah, right. Yeah. We have all this time, and, um, uh, and, and, and some great things have come out of previous quarantines. Like what, uh, Brandon? <laughs> like like King Lear, like Macbeth, like Anthony and Cleopatra. Uh, Shakespeare wrote all that stuff while he was in quarantine during the plague of 1606. He had to, you know, retreat to the countryside and he couldn't go anywhere. And uh, he wrote some, you know, I mean, I guess they're pretty good. 
plays. But he made good use of his he made some good use of his time. But it's kind of unfair because I had the feeling William Shakespeare was going to be writing pretty good stuff anyway. <laughs> I don't know if I can credit the plague with a with a, with a sudden prodigious output of brilliance because he was doing that anyway. Okay, not a good example. Um, and my other one is my favorite uh, freak in science history, Sir Isaac Newton. Oh. That total weirdo. <laughs> he is one of the weirdest people and uh, and probably the greatest scientific genius of all time. He also had to escape uh, London during a uh, another outbreak of the plague in 1665. Did he play cricket? Bubonic plague. He would not play cricket. <laughs> I guarantee you he did not play cricket because he didn't like people. And so in some ways, the quarantine was ideal for him. He finally got away from people and, his, and their distractions. Um, yeah, by so, all accounts, and, he was kind of an asshole. Yeah. What, he, for some, he didn't ask for these positions just because he was such a genius. People just gave him positions because they just wanted to be near him. And that he was given all this responsibility he really shouldn't have had like um <laughs> like like uh what was it the head of the treasury in a way like he was he was the head of making sure there was no in charge of the currency right mm. making sure mm. punishing people that counterfeited money anyway oh that's right yeah. so so uh, and back then that was punishable by death and he called for that death penalty amongst uh, for this person who had um uh, i guess counterfeited large sums and uh, everyone that knew Sir Isaac Newton all said they had never seen him smile in their entire lives, except for the day that they were going to publicly execute this guy. And uh, Sir Isaac Newton was the very first person to show up. He showed up early with a packed lunch. <laughs> to watch someone die. And apparently it made him very, very, very happy. And he pr- produced, and he, and he did uh, some very strange experiments on himself. He once, uh, in you know, while studying optics, he took a bodkin, which is kind of a large sewing needle, and put it. This is kind of the same way that you do a, a frontal lobotomy. He he put it through the corner of his eye, uh-huh. uh, and and tried to. I can almost remember his words. Uh, and rubbed it around betwixt my eye and bone as far back as I could. <sighs> and just to see what would happen. Like, there was not really even a... <laughs> you know, like, why not? You know? I guess if you're bored and shut in and you got nothing else to do, people people at home, don't try this at home. I know quarantine is going to be long and boring, but don't stick needles in your eye, <laughs> you know, unless, unless at the very end of it, you have something to show for it. <laughs> Somehow, the, one of our many laws of physics did not come out of that experiment. No, probably not. But he, <laughs> but he, but, but during that time. You know, uh, he also developed uh, the theory of gravity, the laws of motion. He began his work on his new form of mathematics, the calculus. He did all of his work on optics. He was playing with prisms and understanding, you know, that all uh, that white light could be, you know, 
split by a prism into the colors of the rainbow, but they could be further refracted. All of that stuff came from his time in quarantine. So if you can add as much to the sum of human knowledge as Sir Isaac Newton did during quarantine, then good for you. And by all means, stick a needle in your eye. Maybe that was the secret. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, here's how I think we should end it. I'm, I just walked to my window of my bedroom, and I'm pulling open the shade. Uh-huh. Uh, could you open up the, um, the glass doors of the uh, well, I guest could, house but there? Then but then I'm, I'm going to walk away from the microphone. Then we can, oh, you can't take the microphone with you. Well, it's you should see this apparatus. It's it's fairly immovable. Mm, mm. Uh, I know, man. It's Looks a like good all idea. the lights are off over there. Oh no, I can see some lights on. Okay. They're they're watching a movie. Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. This will be funny mm, mm. piece of audio. I'm gonna turn up the microphone here. Okay. And I'm gonna open the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, there. Oh, I see. <laughs> hey, man. Wait, my wife is on. Now my wife is on the other side of the bedroom, trying to throw me a Ziploc bag of ice <laughs> for my bourbon. I think. Hey. Oh, oh. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, baby. I love you. I was gonna. I was. I was gonna say. I. I Y'all set, Dara set us up so nicely in here. So nicely. But the one thing we don't have is ice. <laughs> but don't, but don't tell her because she will, she will bring it out here. I don't I want that to happen. Oh, thank you, Dara. Thank you, baby. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and me, Anson Mount. Theme music by Brandon, based on a composition by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode is provided by Grievous Angels, under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 United States license. Special thanks this week go out to the doctors, nurses, paramedics, firefighters, and everyone on the front lines fighting this deadly virus. We appreciate you more than you can imagine. And extra special thanks this week go out to Dara Mount for her bravura performance as Florence Nightingale. I love you, baby. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. Broken the fever, I woke in the sweat. Waking the dreamers like waking the dead Off my back and all